Good morning. I'm so glad to be here this morning. Um, would have been glad to be here either way, but I'm especially excited about what the Lord's done. As Seth said, um, I'm Angela and I and the kids are just looking back and thinking, how did this happen? But uh, but we we can see the Lord's hand. I. I I could give you a number of instances, even in the last two weeks, where the Lord just keeps showing more and more evidence that this is this is His will. We're excited about that. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it feels like the Lord is telling you to walk forward and kind of figure things out, but sometimes it just feels like an amusement park ride, and uh, that's kind of how I feel. That's kind of how I feel now. Uh, we are in Luke, and we're going to continue to be in Luke. So, if you'll open your Bibles to the Book of Luke, chapter nineteen. Beginning in verse 41, you're going to find it funny what our text is today, but just as we trusted the Lord's providence three weeks ago, or I guess a couple months ago when we opened up the book of Luke together, we're going to trust the Lord's providence again today and next week. So uh, this text for, for today, our text for today is Luke chapter 19, verse 41 through 44, also known as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Now, that is not the first text I'd think of preaching on a first Sunday at a particular church. And I really seriously considered not preaching on this text. I wrote my friend Victor an email and said, hey, did you realize that, uh, that the first text I'm supposed to preach on the 26th is Jesus weeps over Jerusalem? And he's like, are you going to do it? And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to do it. And he, he just wrote back, Providence weeps over their choice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it gets even funnier because next week, as the official installation service, the uh, passage will be Jesus cl- cleanses the temple. So, so <laughs> the Lord has a sense of humor, and uh, he is faithful to us, and I trust that he'll be faithful to us through this text. Uh, read, uh, read along with me quietly as, as I read this out loud. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I think there's another reason why it is appropriate for me to continue in this series in addition to just Again, communicating as we've tried to communicate every week that, that, that who is behind this pulpit is far less important than what sits on this pulpit. And continuing as work week after week in, in, this cha- in this book is important to us because we trust in the Lord's providence. It's him providing these passages. But I, I think another reason why this is, this is maybe a little more poignant than you might anticipate is, is simply this. I really want to love people like Jesus loves people. And what we see in this passage is not Jesus loving an easy people, right? Not loving the people who deserved it, but loving people, just loving people. And I really want to love people like this. It is easy to see the negative here that Jesus' love for Jerusalem makes him weep. Yes, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because they've rejected him. But there's another positive element of this, and that is that in order for them to reject him, he had to offer himself to them. Um, There's a positive love that's evident in this passage, and that is that Jesus offers himself to us even when it is hard. 
even when it is costly. In fact, that's the only way that Jesus loves us. The only love relationship Jesus has ever had with anybody in this room has been a heartbreaking one. But, but, he is faithful, he is kind, and his promises are true. And so we open up this passage this morning and we think about the fact that, man, I really want to love people like this. And, and not only in the sense of being sad when they aren't following Jesus. And I'll just give you a, a, a quick insight into my pastoral approach. I would much rather weep with you in the blood and sweat and tears of sanctification than weep for you because of judgment and discipline. And what we see in Jesus' case this time is him weeping over someone who would not be sanctified, would not be saved, would not draw near. But uh, as the writer of Hebrews says, I have better hope for you. The heart of this passage is not only that Jesus weeps for someone, but also that he is loving them by holding peace out to them. And again, I think that that's important as I talk about sort of what the Lord's called my wife and I to do in your midst and what I think the Lord's called any pastor to do. And that is to be a man of peace, is to be a man of peace. Now, I want to be clear on a couple of things. That doesn't mean to be a passive man. And that doesn't mean to avoid conflict. The biblical word for peace is far more positive than it is negative. It's far more about the presence of things than it is about the absence of things. And so what I want to put out before you today is not only do I want to love people like Jesus loves them, but I want to hold out peace like Jesus holds out peace. And in order to, in order to tell you what that means, I need to define what peace is. Uh, there's a writer named uh, Cornelius Plantinga who writes a book uh, called The Way Things Ought to Be. And he talks about the biblical peace known as shalom. And I want to, when I introduce this quote to you, I think it's important to how I think and also important to this passage. So uh, I think we have this quote up on the screen. Plantinga writes, This shalom, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight, is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace. But it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts faithfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And so if you want to understand my vision for the church, for providence, for the church of Jesus Christ in general, that's it. I want this place to be as close to the place where things are the way they ought to be. And on display to the whole world as proof of the realness of the gospel, of the power of Jesus, uh, this community should be a display point of truth and beauty to the world and to each other, affirming the realness of Jesus, the goodness of the gospel. In other words, we should be a place of peace. Jesus create, came to create a people for himself who would live in shalom together forever. And that's what we have as our great hope on this first Sunday, that this peace that Jesus offers not, is, is not merely the absence of conflict, but that it's something that builds up marriages and builds up families and builds up churches and even builds up cities and nations. There's the old uh, science fiction moment where the astronaut meets with the aliens and he says, I come in peace. 
right? I want to say this morning, I come for peace. I believe that the whole idea of doing ministry amongst the people, the whole idea of doing pastoral ministry amongst the people is to hold out peace over and over again and create a culture of positive shalom amongst a group of people where they live the promises of God together. And so that's what we're pursuing. Now, the question is, how do we grab a hold of this piece? I mean, how do we get this? And our text is instructive in a completely unexpected way. It tells us how we cannot, <laughs> how we can miss it, how Jerusalem missed it, how they did not grab hold of it. Look at verse 42. He says, Jesus says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. What does Jesus mean when he says, even you? That's a really important moment in the text. He doubles back. What's he doing there when he says, even you? Well, Calvin comments, and most of the other commentators agree, that by saying even you, he's saying that Jerusalem, you had every reason to expect, I had, or, or the world would have every reason to expect that you would have gotten this, that you would have understood the things that make for peace, that you would have known the day of your visitation, but you completely missed it. Even you is essentially Jesus's way of saying, man, it is ironic that you, Jerusalem, are missing the things that make for peace. And there's a few reasons why Jesus is saying that. The first one is kind of interesting. The, the name Jerusalem is literally Yerushalayim, which is essentially the righteousness that brings peace. So Jesus is saying, oh, Jerusalem, even you righteous peace named thing, oh, that you would know the things that make for peace. So one of the reasons why it's ironic that Jerusalem misses the peace that Jesus is offering is because they actually go by the name righteous peace. It's also ironic because this is a people who knew their Bibles better than anyone else in the world. This is a people who perished, but not for lack of scripture knowledge. Um, look at verse 42 again. Oh, that you would have known on this day the things that make for peace. Look at verse 44. Again, the reference to knowing. You, you did not know. You did not know, Jesus seems to repeat twice in this passage. So that's extraordinary because not only is this place named after peace, but it is a place known for knowing. It is, it is the, the, the place in all of the world that was considered to be the most religiously knowledgeable and insightful. And there's a third level of irony. Uh, this is a city with a tactical advantage, meaning they'd done everything they could physically to build up garrisons against invasion. And Jesus is foretelling that they, in spite of all of the efforts they'd gone to to be safe, we're going to be invaded again. So that's the even you piece of this. Now, I want to take a moment and just hit pause and say, there may be some even yous here this morning. I think that there probably always are in a gathering of God's people, a few people who go by the name Christian, who know the Bible stories and have taken great pains to be safe in their life. Maybe even some younger people here this morning who think, you know what, I have a long life ahead of me. 
You see, there's this, this even you category that's in our midst that we would expect to be in our midst if people perhaps who are going by the name of Christian, right? They, they carry that name in the same way that Jerusalem carries the name Jerusalem. You're carrying the name Christian, but it's sort of something that you've inherited from your culture or from your family. And you're carrying that name, but is that really you? You know, in the same way that Jerusalem was knowledgeable of God's word, some of you may be knowledgeable of God's word, but not knowledgeable of the writer of God's word. And perhaps even more importantly, I would say that there could be some here today who feel extremely safe, either because you were young or because you live in a mostly safe place, right? And I would let you know that all three of those things are good things unless you use them as gospel, unless you use them as hope unless you put your trust in them. It's great to grow up in a Christian home, right? I mean, it's great to have mom and dad be followers of Jesus and to kind of always know about Jesus, even from when you're very little. It's great to know God's word and to know the Bible stories. It's great to go to Sunday school way back. I don't think we do Sunday school exactly the same, but with the Bible stories and to see the flannel graph and to see David and Goliath and so on and so forth. Last week, uh, Angela was working in the nursery at Crosshaven and she was teaching on David and Goliath. And so she brought Wesley in who's six foot eight and, uh, and had all the kids throw marshmallows at his forehead. Uh, you know, it's great to, it's great to grow up in a Christian home. It's great to know the Bible stories. It's obviously great to live in a safe place, to be young and know that by all odds, you have a long life ahead of you, but those things aren't great. If you're using those things as your hope. Those things aren't great if you're using those things as your gospel. In fact, not only that, I would say they're not great if you use them as ways to delay choosing Jesus. Jesus is talking uh, to Jerusalem, a place known for sacrifices, and he's talking about holding out the things that make for peace. There was one offering back in the Old Testament that was unique in the fact that it wasn't routine. It was sort of a last-second thing or something that people just did when they felt the need to do it. And the name of that offering was the peace offering. Peace offering has a a beginning and an end. And you don't necessarily know when it's going to start. You don't necessarily know when it's going to stop. If you look at the end of this passage that we're in, verse 44 or so, Jesus says, you did not know the time of your visitation. So right now I'm speaking to the even use in the crowd, the people who might be putting their hope in, in a name or in, in their Bible knowledge or in the, the, the time that they have or the safety that they feel. And I just want you to understand, Hebrews refers to this idea as, do not today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For today is the day of salvation. Jesus says here, for you did not know the time of your visitation. My point would be this. If you're in one of these even you categories, or even if you suspect that you are, I would encourage you not to just allow those things to, to create sort of a, a pause or a, or a time, letting, letting more time pass to decide where you stand with Jesus, because you need to know the day of his visitation. Jesus is offering himself to you even this morning as a peace offering to make you right with God. And I would just encourage you that if you're unsure, that there's plenty of certainty to be found in the truth of who Jesus is. And that just as he was offering peace out to Jerusalem, he's offering peace this morning. He's 
putting this forward and saying simply this. The reason you need a peace offering, the reason that you need peace, is because sin has put you in opposition with God. God is holy and perfect in every single way, and he expects everything that lives with him and worships him to be the same. And the Bible says that from the very beginning, we all wind up far from that standard. So that as Dave read this morning, God must demonstrate his own love for us and that while we are still sinners, when we are in opposition against him, he offers the terms of peace. He makes a way for us to be at peace with God. And that's, I think, the most, I won't get into everything this morning, but I just want to say to those of you that are even you, the biggest mistake you can make is to think because you carry the certain name or because you know certain scriptures or because you're relatively young that you are at peace with God. That, that, that you're okay. That is not what the Bible would say. The Bible would say that you are at peace with God when you accept the peace offering that God has provided. Jesus Christ and the remission of, of your sins with his blood. So I want to speak to those that are even used and say, you know what? Today's the day of salvation. Think about Jesus offering himself to you and understand that's what you need to be about. Now I want to speak to, to the rest of us, to those who are, have that issue settled. And I want to point you to two things that Jesus is doing in this passage that were convicting to me this week. I always tell people I don't pull any punches from the pulpit because I've had to deal with it for six days before at least. Like, like I've had to be convicted for six days. You can handle like 20 minutes. You'll, you'll be fine. <laughs> I don't feel any sympathy for you at all in that regard. I get beat up. You get beat up. That's the basic rule. I want to speak to, to, to you who are here today who know that you have accepted Jesus' peace terms and ask you the simple question, are you like Jesus as we see Jesus in this passage? I want to point you to two things Jesus does when he encounters a great degree of lostness, of impending judgment. And the first one is that Jesus weeps. Right? Jesus weeps. In our men's group, we have the Jesus weeps clause. We memorize a verse every week. Every guy is supposed to be able to memorize one verse a week. And these are guys who are really memorizing scripture for the, for, for the very first time. And they have to come every week with a verse memorized. But we give them one mulligan if they forgot to memorize something. We give them the Jesus weeps clause. They can quote John 12. They can quote John and say, Jesus weeps. And that's their one week. They can only do Jesus weeps, the shortest verse in the Bible, one time, and that's it. But again, in this passage, we see Jesus doing the very same thing he was doing over the death of his friend Lazarus. He is weeping. And this is a simple question. How can someone who in John 17 and other passages declares himself to be the most joyful person, Jesus, the most joyful person ever, Jesus, the one with eternal joy, how can Jesus the one of eternal joy, also be called in Isaiah and here a man of sorrows. Why is Jesus weeping and why is it right for him to be weeping? Well, the source of Jesus' happiness is the holiness of God. Jesus is happy in holiness. And that means that the absence of holiness removes his reason for happiness. So that the most appropriate thing for Jesus to do in this moment is to be unhappy, is to be sad as he looks at the unbelief he sees amongst Jerusalem. 
When a person finds their happiness in the holiness of God, then sin should make them sad. You see, sometimes the very best evidence of what makes us happy is what makes us sad. That's, that's kind of hard to understand, but it's really true. Um, you know, when the royals win, I'm happy. Unless somehow in a very weird, strange circumstance, they beat the cardinals. Which almost never happens. But if it does happen, then I'm sad. When my wife is gone, I am sad. And her sadness, show, or my, her absence, shows what I'm happy in. So when we see Jesus sad here, when we look closely at his tears, we see what he loves. We see what Jesus really loves by the fact that his eyes are leaking a little bit. Actually, the word for weep here is convulsive tears. So when we see Jesus weeping here, we see what he loves. What does he love? He loves the Father. He loves seeking and saving the lost. He loves Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is rejecting the Father's gift and therefore will not be saved. We see what Jesus loves by how he cries. Friends, when was the last time that the lostness of your neighbor or relative or coworker brought you to holy tears? Like they're right next to you all the time people who do not know the day of their visitation, people who do not know the things that make for peace, people who do not know the gospel, and their future is as grim as Jerusalem's and even more so. And when was the last time that simple fact caused you to weep? I'll ask it another way. What do your dry eyes say? about your love for them and for the glory of God. It is actually possible to be happy in Jesus as we've been commanded to be, be happy in God's holiness as we've been commanded to be. It is possible to be happy in him and to weep over unbelief. In fact, it is impossible, I believe, to be happy in God and not be weeping over sin. And so Jesus is standing over a group of people who will not only reject him, but kill him. And he is weeping for their lostness and for the judgment which is impending. So I want to encourage you this morning to not leave this text without asking the most obvious question I can think of. When was the last time I wept? over unbelief. And what does my lack of weeping say about my love for God and my love for my neighbor? Well, I don't want to I don't want to immediately take our eye off of that, but the text must uh, we must progress in in this text and I, I want to point you to a second thing. It, weeping is not all we should do. Jesus weeps over this brokenness that he sees. But then in verse 45, he wipes his eyes and he goes back to work. Look at verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold 
saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. If you've ever struggled with where the sovereignty of God and election fit with evangelism, this is a great text for you. Jesus has just stood over Jerusalem weeping over their impending judgment. And what does he do after he's done weeping? He wipes his eyes. He goes into the temple that he knows will be destroyed. And he does the work God gave him to do. It is appropriate to look out over the lostness of a culture, a city, a family, and weep. But it is also appropriate and right to wipe your eyes and get back to work. You ever think about that? Jesus, Jesus is descending down into the temple to minister in a place that he knows will not exist. He knows that that not a single stone will stand on top of each other. Josephus refers to the judgment of Jerusalem, the invasion of Jerusalem in 70 AD as a plowed field. Nothing remained. Jesus knows this. He's going to spend a whole chapter talking about this two chapters from now. And what does he do with this knowledge? (laughs) He goes down into the temple and gets to work teaching and caring, and serving, and having hard conversations, and directing individuals back to the Lord. There is zero contradiction between election and evangelism, friends. Zero contradiction. We weep over judgment, and then we wipe our eyes, and in faith, we get back to work. Well, the thing I want to leave you with is a little bit more upbeat, a little bit more encouraging. Because here's the deal. The most important reason why this text makes sense for my first Sunday here is because of one simple fact. This whole gospel-centeredness thing ain't a joke. If we ever don't accept the things that make for peace, i.e. the gospel, if we ever move past the day of visitation, i.e. God dwelling amongst us and offering himself for us, then we can expect a future just like Jerusalem. When people walk away from the gospel, this is what happens. Not a single stone will be left unturned. But if we embrace the gospel, if we embrace the terms for peace, then we can expect the exact opposite of what Jerusalem experienced. You see, there's this interesting other passage. Is this a bizarro universe where everything's exactly the opposite? There's this, there's this interesting other passage in Matthew 16, and I think we've got this one for the screen as well, that is essentially the opposite of this passage. In Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There's so many parallels here. The the other passages, you did not see it. You did not know it. It is hidden from your eyes. Jesus here is saying, 
My Father has revealed this to you, but it gets better. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Guys, this is just, uh, this is just gospel 101. Let me just break it down at a couple of different levels. Jesus says, one of the most important things for me that Jesus ever said is, the man who listens to my words and builds his life upon them will be like a man who builds his house upon a rock. The storm will come and he will not be moved. But the man who hears my words and does not obey them is like a man who builds his house upon the sand. He will build this thing and the storms will come and the thing is going to fall down, right? Great will be the fall of it, he says. Here's, here's a few rock solid promises for life. Storms will come. And whatever is built on the things that make for peace, the gospel, not only will stand, but Jesus' promises will continue to grow. Jesus makes the exact opposite prophecy over the church that he makes over Jerusalem. Jerusalem's rejecting the things that make for peace, and it will therefore be torn down. But the church, as long as it is built on the rock of the gospel, the things that make for peace, it will be built up. So the encouraging thing to leave you with this morning is, is that as long as we focus on the gospel and working the gospel into the nooks and crannies of our life, of our relationships, of our families, of our marriages, of our jobs, as long as we stay gospel-centered and focus on what Jesus has done for us, then not only do we not have to worry about this sort of cataclysmic thing, but we can expect that he will continue to build us up and that no matter what enemies encircle us, as Jesus describes in both passages, the institution, the group of people that are built on the gospel will not be shaken. The gates of hell will not prevail. So this whole idea of being centered on what Jesus has done for us by offering himself as a righteous sacrifice to pay for our sins and remove God's punishment against our sins that is central to everything. If we build our lives on it, we will see the peace that we saw at the beginning of this uh, sermon when I read that, that quote. We will see shalom. We will see this webbing together of God and man. But if we reject it, and put our hope in who we think we are and our name and our Bible knowledge and our security in a particular location, if we reject it, it's only a matter of time. So let's not reject it. If you're here this morning and, and, and something I said during that part of the sermon pricked your heart and you just got to thinking, you know, I sure would like to know for sure that I'm his and that, that, that this isn't just something I've inherited from my mom and my dad or, or so on and so forth. I just want to give you an invitation to send me an email or, or shoot me a text. And I would be happy to talk with you about that. Uh, many other people in this church that you know far better than I do would be happy to talk to you about that as well. I would just encourage you to let you know that that, that was God's kindness in pricking your heart this morning. And that he's doing that because he loves you and you don't have anything to be ashamed about. Just press forward in faith that know that God did that for you, that he visited this morning to speak with you and that he will, he, he will guide you through this process. You don't have anything to worry about. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to us this morning in your word and holding out the things that make for peace. 
we know, based on your word, that that is not simply the absence of conflict, but that that's the presence of all sorts of great things, of, of everything working together according to your plan. And so we, we thank you, Lord, that the gospel, if the gospel were only about the removal of our sins, we would have more than we deserve. But the gospel is not simply about saving us from something, but saving us for something. And we praise you that you have been so kind and lavish to offer this peace that builds this glorious life with you forever. I'll lift up two different groups of people this morning. I lift up those who uh, we've talked about that, that maybe aren't sure they're yours. They've got, they've got little scatterings of things they're putting their hopes in, but maybe not their hopes in you. And I also lift up those people who felt conviction this morning over the dryness of their eyes in the sight of unbelief. Lord, I, I think I know what you want to do with this church. I think I know that you want to turn our hearts outward, to lead many to know you, to, to boldly proclaim your gospel. I pray that you would encourage us even this morning to leave this place, to spend this week thinking about all the people we rub elbows with every week that don't know you. Let your spirit do the work it needs to do. In Jesus' name we pray.